Welcome to New Community Sunday Service. Please join me in our call to worship. Holy Watering One, Fount of Every Blessing, we come to you this morning opening our parched places to receive the springs of living water you offer to us. Most of the time, most of us don't even know we're thirsty. We don't know the deep dehydration that scours our bones and parches our hearts. Sometimes when our thirst pangs emerge, we draw from the enticing wells of the world's offering of power and profit, which leave us even more empty. Still us, God, so we might listen to you speaking to us, knowing us, seeing us, loving us. Fill us with your living water that will transform our spirits and souls into springs that burst forth with life and love for your people, for ourselves, and for our world. Hey Newcom, my name is Danny Parker and I'm going to be leading a small discussion about ADHD. So if you or one of your kids has ADHD and there's a pretty good chance that you have ADHD if one of your kids does, um, feel free to come to this meeting. It's on February 21st at 2 p.m. Um, we're trying to decide whether to do it in the building, uh, socially distanced with masks or online. So when you RSVP by emailing me at my email, danieldcparker at gmail.com, um, would you just please tell me your preference and then we'll figure out what the group wants to do. Um, either way, we're going to be maintaining good social distancing and being as careful as we possibly can. Uh, the reason that I'm doing this is because I have ADHD and I've been trying to figure my own stuff out uh, since I was diagnosed in about third grade. Um, I am getting my master's in teaching from Gonzaga this year. Uh, and so I'm, I've been spending a lot more time than normal thinking about the way that ADHD affects a student, the way that ADHD affects an adult, um, lots and lots of ways to get about this and lots of resources that I've found and that I would love to share with you or somebody that you care about. Um, so basically show up if you're interested in finding out some resources. Um, doesn't matter how much you know or how much you don't know. Um, we can all learn from each other in this case. And I think that one of the greatest things that we can offer a person with ADHD is finding a community or at least one other person that they know that also has uh, what I like to call our superpower. So um, come on down February 21st at 2 p.m. Please RSVP ahead of time at danieldcparker at gmail.com. Thanks so much. See you there. Hey, Newcom. This is Brooke here. I wanted to share a few ways that we can engage in the Lenten season as a community, which believe it or not, the season of Lent begins this coming Wednesday with Ash Wednesday. So this time of Lent that precedes Easter is a unique time where we can reflect and realign as a community with the life, the teachings, and the suffering of Jesus. And we want to begin with a community podcast on Wednesday morning for Ash Wednesday to help us engage thoughtfully and prayerfully together. We'd encourage you to give it a listen and maybe discuss with your small group. Newcom will also be partnering with Nightlights Candles to release a candle for Lent this year. These candles, 100% of the proceeds will go to Global Neighborhood, which is a nonprofit serving former refugees in our city. 
You can purchase a candle for yourself or a friend for a suggested donation of $25. These proceeds, again, will go straight to Global Neighborhood, and we hope that this candle will help you to uh, meditate and reflect prayerfully throughout the season. The label has the Stations of the Cross listed on it um, from Scott Erickson. So we hope that this is both an encouragement to you and also an encouragement to our community. You can purchase the candle or make a donation to Global Neighborhood on the Nightlights Candles website. Be sure to email us if you need help finding the link. Generous and surprising God, when we thought that death had claimed your only son, you amazed us with the resurrection. Surprise us again with your ability to turn our humble offerings into gifts that will transform the world through our witness to your love. We lay our very lives at your feet, O God, knowing that you will use us to proclaim and embody the gospel. Amen. The scripture reading for this morning is from Matthew 17, verses 1 to 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why... Do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist.
community, welcome this morning. Whenever and however you are listening, we are glad you are here with us. Our passage today is the story of the Transfiguration from Matthew 17, 1 through 13. The story of the Transfiguration is clearly a high point in the gospel narrative. It's one of the unique moments when we get a glimpse of the full divinity of Jesus Christ. The account is fascinating to me because it's layered in its meaning, and not unlike many of the stories we read from the Gospels, there are multiple different ways the story can speak to us in this time. So today, I want to look at a few different layers and how they might impact our understanding and praxis. In a lot of ways, it will be a continuation of last week's message, but in sermon form rather than conversation. So let's begin looking at the historical layer to better understand the event itself. Now, it could be easy in your reading to pass over it quickly and leave with the interpretation that it's a miracle story connecting Jesus with the Father. But understanding the details through the Hebrew worldview of the first century, the story takes a bit of a different shape. In the first sentence, we are already seeing how things are connected to the context in which they lived. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him. More than the fact that these were the inner circle disciples for Jesus, those he had drawn in closer than others, the presence of three is important. In Old Testament law, Deuteronomy 19 specifically, it was stipulated that three witnesses needed to be present to testify to the veracity of any fact. Given the reality that this instance was not a part of the public ministry of Jesus, but rather a more personal and divine experience, Jesus was careful to make sure this moment could be passed on as a true event. As the story would be told and retold and passed down through the generations, denying the lordship of Christ would become increasingly difficult as three witnesses could bear testimony to its truthfulness. Now, just beyond the who that's involved, we see the where of the setting, high on an unnamed mountain. Mountaintop experiences were important and foundational in the Jewish understanding. It was on Mount Sinai that Moses received the law from God in Exodus 19, and on Mount Horeb where Elijah, amidst all the powerful forces of nature, hears the whisper of God. Not only does Jesus' mountaintop transfiguration parallel these experiences from earlier Old Testament figures, but the figures themselves were present. Moses and Elijah are heroes in the Hebrew worldview. But more than their hero status, they represent two foundational elements of the belief system. Moses represents the law and Elijah, the prophecy, both of which pointed to a coming Messiah and fulfillment of God's original intention. In this way, these two figures appearing with and standing next to Jesus in this moment would have assured the reader or listener through the oral tradition of the centrality of Christ in the overarching narrative of God's work. You see, God uses Hebrew understanding and historical similarities to draw attention to the importance of the event and centrality of Jesus' incarnational reality. These few historical points should help to better frame the story, but the next two layers, I believe, are more applicable to the outworking of our lives. The first I want to discuss is the layer of misunderstanding. The misunderstanding layer is directly connected to the statement spoken from God when he says this, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Like I mentioned earlier, Moses and Elijah are arguably the two most important figures in the Hebrew faith. 
And the fact that they appear in this story undergirds the importance of Jesus. But Peter's desire to build three tents highlights his misconception of their equality with Jesus. From the Hebrew perspective, the coming Messiah was too often imagined to be a figure of dominating power, a man whose presence was known and felt around the world, whose actions would bring evil empires to their knees and release the captive Israel forever. Their hoped-for Messiah looked a lot more like the kings and emperors from their historical neighboring nations than the figure of Jesus standing right in front of them. In this way, it was easy to misunderstand Jesus as another prophetic voice similar to that of Moses and Elijah, a man equipped to continue the lineage of God's sent messengers, pointing to the ultimate reality of God's messianic plan to come. Although he walked with Jesus for some time before, on that high mountaintop, Peter's confusion of who Jesus actually is comes to a head as he offers hospitality to all three figures standing before him in the same way. And although well-intentioned, Peter's elevation of Moses and Elijah to the same status of Jesus was wrong. It's in this moment that God makes clear who Jesus is. Moses and Elijah disappear, and it's only Jesus standing there with the voice of God speaking over him, saying, This is my son. Listen to him. God leaves no doubt with this statement. Not a messenger, not a leader of morality, not a prophet, not a simple miracle worker for God. Jesus is God's son, the rightful heir, God incarnate. Peter didn't know it but he is standing in front of the Lord of the universe, getting a glimpse of the full glory of God on that mountain. Now, imagine yourself in this experience, being confused about Jesus in the moment, but then having God the Father set your interpretation right and instructing you to listen to him, essentially refocusing your whole life and understanding in a singular moment. It seems hard to imagine a scenario where you would ever question it again, doesn't it? Yet, we know, not only by following Peter through the rest of the Gospels as he continues to struggle with his belief, but likely from our own experience, it's easy to forget who Jesus really is. It's easy to elevate other things to the same or even greater importance than Jesus. For Peter, he elevated his strongly held belief in his Hebrew worldview. For us, it could be similar. Maybe there is a conviction or a cause or a deeply held belief that you have elevated above Jesus and his kingdom. Or maybe it's something more tangible, like your family. Could be your job, your health, maybe your marriage. Might even be your success. Any number of these things can slowly take the position of preeminence if they're left unchecked. This is why God's statement is so important. His voice over Jesus on that mountain is the definitive word as to who Jesus should be in our lives. Paul speaks to this idea in, a, in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For him by all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Creator and sustainer, there is nothing that should rival the importance or place of Jesus in our lives. To elevate anything to the same status of Jesus is no different than Peter's misunderstanding on that mountain. This week, take the time necessary to really think about the place that Jesus truly holds in your life in your thoughts, in your actions, and how you spend your time? Is there something you have elevated to become of equal or greater importance than Jesus? Like Russ mentioned a few weeks ago, that thing or those things might not be bad in of themselves, but anything that replaces the centrality of Jesus and his work in your life is idolatry. Now, the last layer I want to talk about is for me the most interesting and challenging, and it's the layer of image bearing. This layer is connected in many ways to the layer of misunderstanding, but I think there's a subtle difference that can speak directly into a current issue that plagues the expression of many people's Christian faith. From the 30,000-foot level, the story is about transformation. In fact, transfiguration means a complete change in form or appearance. In the Greek, the word is metamorpho and carries the connotation to change the outside to match the inside. It's important to remember for the story, it's not Christ reflecting the radiance of God like Moses did. It's the full divine reality of the triune God becoming apparent in Jesus, the person. In that moment, Jesus changes physical form from human to God. Jesus' outward appearance changed to match his inward divinity. The story centers on Jesus' transformation, but the greatest applicative theological point we can glean from the story is the necessity for our transformation in light of who we see Jesus to be in this story. Just as Jesus transformed, we too should seek transformation. The idea of transformation in the Christian faith is foundation, foundational. In a very simplistic way of explaining our common experience, we are certain people before we knew Jesus. We encounter Jesus somehow or some way, and then we are transformed and continually transforming as we journey with Christ. We become new people, as the scripture indicates. In many ways, our outside actions transform to reflect this internal change. So if this is the case, why does real change sometimes seem so elusive? Why do we get hung up on the same things and find ourselves in the same patterns and rhythms as before? Aren't we changed? Aren't we new people? So if it was as simple and straightforward as becoming a new person once we meet Jesus and journey with him, then I'm not sure we would need 
to be kept on track with the endless sermons and Bible studies and books and podcasts and accountability partners and so on. So something must be amiss, right? The easy answer is sin, and yes, it's the correct answer. But Peter's misstep with the desire to build three tents allows us to see a nuanced, destructive pattern that's much more difficult to identify than the obvious things like sexual immorality or lying or murder or stealing or so forth. You see, in offering the three tents, not only did Peter misunderstand what was going on, but his action was more about trying to transform Christ to something that fit his worldview than being transformed in light of who Jesus was shown to be. It was safe and comfortable for him to stay on that mountain. It made sense to everything he already knew. But following Jesus has never been about making sense and has always been about transformation. The act of trying to transform God into what we want him to be is perhaps our greatest temptation. To have a God that agrees with you, that believes the same things as you, a God that loves and hates the same people as you do, a God that doesn't question your thoughts or actions, a God that fits into your preconceived ideas of how the world should be, a God that does not require anything beyond what you are willing to give. This proposition is intoxicating to think about, and I would argue the work done to try to transform God into something that fits our lives is poisoning our souls and destroying our witness to the world. The scripture is clear that we are created in the image of God, but this story highlights the destructive pattern of seeking to create God in our image. I don't talk about it a lot, but something that some of you know about me, and probably many don't, is that I have a deep love for competing in the functional fitness space, otherwise known as CrossFit. Think about it as exercise for time. Honestly, it's been a significant part of my life for almost 10 years. I've probably been a part of 50 or so competitions over the last decade. And although each competition is different, there is one similar aspect to every single one of them, and it's the athlete briefing. You see, the athlete briefing is typically an early morning meeting before the day's competition. It's mandatory for all the athletes to participate. The organizer of the competition briefs the athletes on the day's competitive workouts with excruciating details. The primary reason for the athlete briefing is to communicate the standards by which the judges will use to evaluate the quality and completion of each rep of the athletes over the day. Over the course of a given competition, there could be 20 to 30 unique movements programmed, each with a set of specific standards of how that movement is to be completed. The entire competition is built on the shared understanding of these standards and the ability of the judges to evaluate each athlete's adherence to them. Having been both an athlete and organizer, I have sat through many of these briefings, and they all end up the same way. The organizer explains the given workout and its standards, and then opens it up for questions. Now, in general, I am not a big who's got questions type of guy in groups of 150 people. The inefficiency of this is just too much for me. But in this setting, certainly I have experienced a time or two where the question asked legitimately clarifies an issue. 
but I will say 90% of those questions are in some fashion an attempt to change or modify the standard that's set forth. You see, each athlete has a physical makeup in a unique way, and they've trained in a certain way, and therefore have specific biases in movements that are more advantageous for them. For example, athlete A may be on the shorter side, so when the wall ball which is essentially squatting a 20-pound ball and then throwing it to the face of a target for multiple repetitions is briefed, they might ask, and this has happened on multiple occasions, where on the target does the ball need to hit? So the answer is pretty straightforward. It needs to hit the face of the target. But athlete A, knowing their height is a disadvantage in this specific movement, will inevitably ask if the ball hits the bottom edge of the target, does it count? And it's at this point that I have proof that opening up questions to 150 people is never an efficient way to get your questions answered. You see, the real question is this. Because I am short, it's far easier to throw the ball to the edge of the target, so can you please change your standard to allow me to perform this movement in a way that's more comfortable for me? I have realized there are two types of competitive exercisers, as we jokingly call ourselves. Those that seek to change or cheat the standards for an advantage in their performance, or those that operate within the given parameters and allow their overall fitness and ability to adapt dictate their performance. I believe we find ourselves in a similar spot in our faith. Either you are a person seeking to transform God into the thing you want him to be, or you are yourself being transformed into the person God wants you to be. There is no middle ground in the life of discipleship. It's increasingly tempting to find your place of comfort and try to pull God into that space with you. This might look like seeking to transform God into a Democrat or a Republican or a God that's mostly concerned with your financial security or a God that's American or a God that agrees with you on who does and does not get into heaven or a God whose joy is predicated on the wins or losses of a certain team or whose value is connected with the volume of likes on your given social media platform. Just like athletes might try to change the standards to something easier or better for them, Peter seeks to transform Jesus into something more palatable to his worldview. And so, the story of the transfiguration provides a sober reminder of the ease with which we can pursue God's transformation rather than our own. Anne Lamont says, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people as you do. It's not just about a God that might hate the same people as you do, as I know this community and I've seen very little hate within it. For us, it's about creating a God whose focus is on anything beyond our ultimate redemption and the advancement of the kingdom. It's about both the overt or subtle ways we've potentially sought to create God in our image. Paul rebukes this endeavor and calls us to transformation in Romans 12 when he says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, 
that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We cannot change God. We must not try to transform God into our image. This requires a deep humility and willingness to avail ourselves to the ongoing transformational work of the Holy Spirit. Pope Francis says this, To put it simply, the Holy Spirit bothers us because he moves us. He makes us walk. He pushes the church to go forward. And we are like Peter at the Transfiguration. Ah, how wonderful it is for us to all be here like this, all together. Don't bother us. We want the Holy Spirit to doze off. We want to domesticate the Holy Spirit, and that's no good, because He is God. He is that wind which comes and goes, and you do not know where. He is the power of God. He is the one who gives us consolation and strength to move forward. And this bothers us, as it's much nicer to be comfortable. It is much nicer to be comfortable. It feels better to be right. It's easier to be in control. It's tempting to reshape Jesus to something that fits what we want. And yet, the very idea of being transformed into the image of Christ requires our willingness to let go of comfort, to let go of being right, and to let go of being in control. Take a moment and reflect right now, maybe just on the past few months. How in your life have you sought to transform God into something that better aligns with your desires or beliefs? And what might it look like for you to let go and allow yourself to be transformed? Dallas Willard says this, Spiritual transformation into Christ-likeness is not going to happen unless we act. What transforms us is the will to obey Jesus Christ. This is our unchanging call to discipleship. We first trust Christ with our lives. We open ourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit, and we pursue radical obedience to the teachings of Christ. And in this, we will be transformed into His image. The transfiguration is like a peek behind the curtain. It not only allows us to see the reality of Christ, but exposes some of humanity's greatest subtle faults, how we can easily elevate the wrong things, and how we can prioritize ourselves in our pursuit to transform God to be more like us, rather than transform to be more like Him. New community, let us hold fast to the voice of God in the story. This is my son, listen to him. It assures us of the centrality and authority of Jesus. And although there will be moments of doubt and seasons of uncertainty in the future, our hope can be grounded in Jesus as our creator and sustainer. And our work can be focused on the continual transformation into the image with which we are called. Amen. New Community in the coming week, may you experience the presence of God with joy. May the holy cloud comfort you. May the divine voice encourage you. And may the power of the Spirit transform you. Transform us. Transform our world. Amen.